If you have your Bibles, hope you do, turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 and verses 10 and 11 will be, uh, actually verse 10 uh, will be our, our 11a in some uh, versions, uh, will be our passage this morning. Last week we paused our series on the Lord's Prayer uh, because it was Sanctity of Life Sunday and we jumped into Psalm 139 and saw how there's wonderful things in the unformed child within the womb uh, that we can worship God and delight in Him. And so this morning we're stepping back into our study on the Lord's Prayer, desperate dependence and learning how we can live as a church in desperate dependence uh, of our, our great Father. Uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this series, uh, these are things that Mike and I are learning along with you, uh, that we need this as well, specifically me. And so this week, uh, as I've been studying uh, this specific line in verse 10, uh, it's been very uh, challenging, uh, very uh, convicting for me. Uh, and so hope, hope as we study it together this morning that all of us will be changed by God's grace through uh, this passage. Uh, so we're in Matthew chapter 6 and verse uh, 10. I'm not sure if you have noticed this, uh, but I certainly have, that for some reason we Americans have an infatuation with royalty. Anybody else notice that? Uh, they've said that nearly 22.7 million Americans watched the live coverage of the wedding between Prince William and Kate Middleton uh, back in 2011. 33.2 million tuned in to watch the funeral of Princess Diane in 97. And our attraction to British royalty continues with the newest Netflix, Netflix original series, The Crown. Uh, and that is all about the crown uh, in Britain. Even Prince Harry's engagement showed up in the news uh, right before the end of the year. So why is it that we're so preoccupied with royalty? I mean, we're the, the country that uh, left and rejected the monarchy, <laughs> weren't we? But yet we're infatuated with royalty. The funny thing is, it's not even just though the royalty of Britain, it's any royalty. And our fascination with it starts at a young age. Uh, all the stories that our children read are of kings and queens and princesses and princes. Uh, if it wasn't so, Disney's magical kingdom would not be so enchanting and magical, would it, for us? We're infatuated with that. We love the pageantry, the elegance of royalty. We even go so far as to impose uh, certain kinds of royalty on our leaders here in America. The days of the Kennedy administration were known uh, as the Camelot era. Uh, we've called musicians the Count and Jazz, the, the Duke. Uh, we have the King, Elvis Presley. Uh, we've called all these individuals by names of royalty. You might have went to a high school where you had the prom king and the prom queen. I'm not sure they were that royal, but we used that phrase. Yet, we also have this certain aversion to royalty, a certain aversion to sovereignty. If you walk the streets of Philadelphia and you look at uh, the signs and slogans of the revolutionary era, you read signs like, no taxation without representation. Don't tread on me, and maybe the boldest slogan of all, we serve no sovereign here. Because deep down inside, we just don't like to be ruled over, do we? 
It's not just our modern culture that rejects authority and bristles at submission. History has revealed it time and time again that we just don't want to live under the rule of a king or a queen. You have the Samaritans revolt against the Byzantine Empire, Scotland against England, you have the French Revolution, Benedict Arnold, Aaron Burr, the list could go on and on. And we join these people in our hostility to authority, yet we're still attracted to royalty. Well, perhaps our infatuation lies deeper than we really would like to admit. Could it be possible that our aversion to sovereignty actually reveals our innermost desire to be sovereign ourselves? Maybe that's why we're so infatuated. We want to be in that position. Well, here in Matthew chapter 6, our Savior confronts this particular aversion we have to royalty. And while many of us would not classify the Lord's Prayer as radical or revolutionary, the truth is what Jesus instructs us to pray in these verses are anything but serene. In fact, Al Mohler writes, The Lord's Prayer is for revolutionaries, for men and women who want to see the kingdoms of this world give way to the kingdom of our Lord. The Lord's Prayer is anything but tame. And what adds force to the punch that it provides here in Matthew is that from the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, from this account, he has been highlighting the kingship of Christ. If you remember back in chapter 1, we have the genealogy, where he specifically notes that Jesus is of David, King David's family line. Chapter 2, the wise men visit King Herod and they ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Chapter 3, we have a coronation of sorts where Christ is baptized and God declares over him, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4 includes Satan's temptation and the questioning of Christ's status as the king. As he shows him the kingdoms of the world up on the mountaintop and all of their splendor. And he says, If you bow to me and worship, I'll give you all of these things. Now, in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew records this first declaration from this king, Jesus. And he lays out here in Matthew 5 through 7, these kingdom principles for his subjects, his followers to follow. So it's here in the middle of this sermon that we read the Lord's Prayer. And in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, in verse 10, we have these words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is God's word for us this morning. Before we continue, let's thank him for it and ask him to speak through it. Father, this morning we do do ask that you would use your word to change our hearts, that you would speak to us through these words here this morning, that we would leave crying out, not just with our lips, but with our hearts, the, the deepest portions of our being, Your kingdom come, your will be done. In my life, the lives of my children and my family, my neighbors and the world around us on earth as it is in heaven. So God, speak to us through your word this morning. In your name, amen. The very beginning of this prayer, we have these petitions of adoration that Christ gives us. 
And they ought to correctly center both us and our prayers on giving the glory and honor to God, which he deserves. Before we begin to start thinking of ourselves and our needs, even before we share concerns for others, Jesus teaches us that we must start with a holy God, the one to whom we pray and the one to whom we desperately depend upon. J.I. Packer writes, All right-minded praying starts with a long look Godward, and a deliberate lifting up of one's heart to give thanks and adoration. And so as Mike helped us understand two Sundays ago, we begin this act of desperate dependence by acknowledging both the mercy extended to us in Christ so that we might address God as Father, and also that our supreme desire be that He be hallowed, that our Father would be viewed as transcendent and holy. This long look Godward continues as Jesus instructs us here to acknowledge God's rule, his reign, and his resolve, and that we petition that it would be seen here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, if you're taking notes this morning, the main point, the big idea that we have in this verse is that in prayer, we are submitting our plans and dreams to the rule, reign, and resolve of our sovereign king. In the act of prayer that act of desperate dependence, we submit our plans, we submit our dreams to the rule, reign, and resolve of our sovereign king. And so as we study this phrase this morning, I believe God would call each of us to release our firm grasp that we have on our lives, and that he would produce full surrender to his rule in our lives. And so we do so by acknowledging two things this morning, two points in the sermon your kingdom come, your will be done, that we would be desperate for his kingdom and dependent on his will. Now, I'm not always going to use those two words uh, for every single point in the sermons, but if it fits, I'm going to use it. And I believe it will help us this morning as we think about these phrases, very common phrases that we hear many times in prayers, but that we would gain a better sense that we're desperate for his kingdom and dependent on his will. We start off looking at verse 10. Admitting that we're desperate for his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Now talk of the kingdom is not out of the ordinary for Jesus. In fact, back in chapter 4, Matthew informs us of the content of Jesus as he is taught from day one. From that time, that is from the point of his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark, in his gospel account, records, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As we continue throughout each of the gospels, this message of the kingdom of God arrives as a common theme from the lips of our Savior. But what in the world does it mean? What does it mean when he says the kingdom of God? Actually, that question is one of the oldest and most hotly debated and contested theological issues in the church. And I don't expect to solve that this morning, but I do hope to provide some help for us, some clarity on what this phrase means. Most of us have grown up in the church, and I would venture to say that our understanding of this phrase usually falls under what has been classified as the dispensational teaching of the kingdom of God, that it's purely a future reality to be inaugurated at the millennial reign of Christ. 
a teaching that's, in fact, fairly new to the church, introduced at the late 19th century. In dispute of that view, in the early 20th century, theological liberals uh, began to argue that the kingdom of God arrives today through moral reform and social justice. That view is sometimes called the social gospel. and views the kingdom of God as something humanity itself can achieve through social action. If we fast forward to today, we see many theological conservatives, even in evangelicals, who begin to think that Christians can usher in the kingdom through a certain political action, by having a certain person in, in office and cultural influence. But among all of the attempts to explain this phrase, kingdom of God, the one that has proven to be the most helpful throughout the ages, most in line with scripture, is actually Augustine's explanation in the 15th century work that he gives us called the city of God. There he uses a metaphor of a city to describe and contrast the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. Commenting on this work, Moeller writes, building upon Jesus' teaching about the first and second greatest commandments, Augustine suggests that the Christian must understand that there are two cities in this world. The first city is the city of God. This city is God's not merely because he resides there, but because his character and authority define that city. There, God's sovereign authority is unmitigated and unconditioned. It is ordered according to the rule and reign of God's law, which demonstrates simultaneously and equal proportion his justice. It reveals his character as just, righteous, merciful, and yet holy. So in the city of God, as Augustine writes, everything is exactly as God would have it to be. As a result, then, the city of man is not as it should be. Unlike the city of God, the city of man is characterized by selfishness, ungodliness, conflict, and strife. The city of man is temporary, both conditioned and created it does not exist on its own terms though as paul makes clear in romans chapter one the city of man refuses to acknowledge its creaturely independent status there in that work augustine is arguing that each of these cities has different rulers different individuals that are reigning in authority but it's also, each of these cities is characterized by a specific love. The city of God is characterized and enlivened by the love of God. The love of man, though, arouses and controls the city of man. In other words, the kingdom of God is where God is supreme, where his rule, reign, and resolve are ultimate. Graham Goldsworthy provides a very simple definition when he reads or writes, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we are actually uh, going through a little book with the nursery uh, called God's Big Picture Bible, written by David Helm. Uh, and in that, he uses that phrase over and over again. So we're starting to teach our children this. God, the God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing. We've even observed that in our study of the story of God as community groups. We see God's people... His place and his rule that's present throughout the story. In the Garden of Eden, we have the earliest expression of God's kingdom as God rules over his people, Adam and Eve. 
Then we have God creating this nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. He delivers to them his law as the king of heaven and earth. He separated the Israelites as his people. And he tells them what? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Then he provides them with his place, the promised land. And as the story continues, we see Israel reject God as their king, as their ruler, and they are removed from his place. Yet throughout all the Old Testament, and we saw that happen over and over again, where they reject God and his rule and they are in his place and then removed from it, God still proves faithful. So then when we flip the page into the New Testament, Jesus steps onto the scene and he starts to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. Oh, that's not a new concept. That's been something from day one that has been seen throughout scripture. In other words, God's person, his place and his rule are gloriously revealed in Christ. And Jesus' actions, as we read in the the gospels, they validate that. They validate his proclamation that the kingdom of God is here. His miracles demonstrate that indeed the future was breaking into the present. One author writes, Jesus gives sight to the blind. That is the kingdom of God coming near. Jesus causes the lame to walk. That is the kingdom of God come near. Jesus touches and cleanses lepers. The kingdom of God. Jesus liberates those held captive by demonic powers. That is a new order breaking into the present. He heals the sick. He befriends prostitutes and one of them comes and washes his feet with tears. The kingdom of God is here. He calms the wind and the waves to calm. That is the kingdom of God. He multiplies the loaves to feed the hungry. Again, the kingdom of God is ruling and reigning over all these different aspects in our world. Jesus champions the powerless. He stands in solidarity with the poor. That is his kingdom. And so as we move into this new covenant age, as Jesus fulfills all of Israel's failings, all those, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all who come to him in faith are now identified as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Again, we read in 1 Peter, God's place, his people, and his rule. The church is now the current expression of God's kingdom, where we incarnate Jesus to the world around us. We bring his rule down here on earth in grace and truth, just as Jesus did. God's people, his place, his temple under his rule, and yet... We still long for the fullest expression of God's kingdom in the new creation when all things are renewed and restored. Scripture leads us to conclude that the kingdom of God is already here. It's already been here. It is now and is yet to come. So the kingdom of God is not just something that we long for in the future. Yes, it is, but it is something that is broken into the here and now. And we have seen it. We see it now and we will one day see it in its fullness. So R.C. Sproul writes, Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. Christ is king right this minute. Do we acknowledge that? Are we those who would say Christ is ruling and reigning right now? He has the highest cosmic authority. All, All authority in all heaven and on earth has been given to God's anointed son. 
Well, this instruction by Jesus in verse 10 to cry out your kingdom come, it is, it's an admission that we have no other king. It's conceding our desperation for his rule and reign over our lives. Which is why, if I'm honest with you, this is one of the hardest phrases, I think, in this prayer. Specifically for me to actually pray, your kingdom come. Because I'm not always sure I want God's rule and reign over my life. I'm not always willing to live under his rule. I tend to think I've got everything under control. I've got it figured out. In fact, living in the city of Dan, where everything is actually as Dan would have it to be, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Okay, for you. Put your name in there. You don't want to live in my city. But I want to be king over my own life. And I could prove that to you in thousands, okay, probably billions of ways of that happening. In fact, one way this reality has played out over the past couple weeks in my life is that there are some subjects in the city of Dan who have begun to form a coup. And while you might be jumping to a conclusion and think that there's four of them, there's actually more, Megan doesn't make the fifth, though. There's actually been somewhere around, I think, ten that have formed this coup against the city of Dan. And this has brought me to the use of heavy artillery, yet they still attack over and over again. And if I can't stop these mice from coming into my home, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going crazy all over them. My sovereignty is being attacked. When I see little droppings, uh, when I find these little creatures, and I won't have it. They are not allowed in the city of Dan. Now we might all laugh at that illustration. We would understand uh, we're being attacked by these rodents. The truth is we don't just act that way towards rodents. We often act that way towards those we love the most. We think and act, sadly, towards our spouse, our children, our family and friends, our co-workers, like we're the ones in charge, that we rule and reign. I mean, just ask my kid what it's like at bedtime in the city of Dan. Some of the parents know what bedtime is like, whether that's at late at night or early morning, they're either not going to sleep when they're supposed to or they're waking up way too early. And that's questioning my rule and reign. Any other parents? Can you give me an amen on that? It's when all of a sudden my kingdom is threatened. And unfortunately, just as Augustine explained in the city of man, self-love rules and reigns so often. That's what happens at nighttime in the city of Dan. Self-love rules out self-love wins and they have stirred a giant a king that wants nothing to do with his subjects at that time in those moments this is the phrase that ought to wreck us as parents your kingdom come not mine God, over this child that may be disobeying in this moment, your kingdom come. Your rule and reign. One author writes, We typically spend our lives seeking to expand our own kingdoms. 
increase our own assets, resources, and influence. Our kingdoms can include the workplace, the church, the club, the sporting team, and the home. We grow very protective of anything into which we have invested our time, energy, and money. When people challenge our kingdom, we react defensively and perhaps even with hostility. This simple observation of human nature makes Jesus' prayer here all the more challenging. Any invitation for God's kingdom to come threatens our own kingdom. Kingdoms are, by definition, mutually exclusive. Any domain with two kings is ripe for conflict. Thus we might express the phrase, your kingdom come another way. My kingdom done. My kingdom no longer. Let your kingdom displace, replace my kingdom. So let me ask you this morning. Are you desperate for that? For his rule and reign? For his kingdom? Are you willing to lay down your rule and reign for his or Do you have everything in order? You've got it under control. If we pray this prayer sincerely, it demands surrender of our values to embrace His. It means releasing into His hands the reins we hold so tightly. Your kingdom come does not invite the Father to just come and watch us rule and reign over our own lives. No, we invite Him to take control. Not partner with, but to take charge of our lives. So are we desperate for his kingdom? In prayer, we're not only admitting our desperation for his rule and reign, but as the verse continues, we admit our dependence on his will. The next phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're honest, we have less of an inversion to God's will than we do to his rule. At first glance, we might be more ready and willing to pray that line. Oh God, your will be done. However, the force that comes with this first line doesn't actually weaken in the second here. Actually, for some of us, it might actually grow stronger and cut even more deeply into wandering hearts. This phrase, will of God, does not always mean the same thing throughout Scripture. In fact, there are two different Greek words, or at least two different Greek words used in the New Testament that are translated will. Their meaning is not always immediately present and apparent. Needless to say, that has brought about much confusion. I think many of us have probably at one point asked the question, how can I know the will of God? And while the heart behind that question is certainly to be encouraged, The theology behind it isn't always the most accurate, is it? You see, there are two primary ways in which this phrase is most commonly used throughout Scripture, both of which are not mysterious in nature, as if God's will is something on a quest that we are to go and find. The first use is often described as the sovereign or decreed will of God, refers to God's absolute sovereign rule over things. For instance, Genesis 1, God spoke and he willed everything into existence. Ephesians 1, Paul affirms that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of what? His will. In other words, the only reason anything exists is because God has willed it to exist. Now the second use described is as perceptive or revealed will of God. It refers to his commands, his precepts. He issues to regulate his creation. 
what God actually expects of us. Examples of this would include the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the call to repent and believe the gospel from Acts 17. Paul also uses this form in 1 Thessalonians when he writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And it's the second use of this term, the will of God, that most logically fits here in this petition from Christ as he instructs us to to pray. Since we know that God's will will always be accomplished, he is ruling and reigning not just in heaven but also on earth, the psalmist tells us whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And so we understand this as his commands, his regulations, his resolve. The purpose of this petition is plain. It's not that we are asking God to do our will, but to bring our will into line with his. In other words, we're declaring our dependence on his resolve and his requirements. Again, J.I. Packer comments, So understood, I cannot sincerely ask for the doing of God's will without denying myself. For when we get down to the business of everyday living, we regularly find that it is our will rather than his that we want to do or to see happening. So again, the force continues in this prayer. Your kingdom come. If we can pray that, or if we can't pray that, we kind of think, oh, well, I'll I'll just stick with your will be done. God, I want your will to happen. But that's also a denying of ourselves, a denying of what we dream, what we hope to take place. And it's a following his regulations and his requirements for us. If you've ever tried to get a two-year-old to eat something they don't like, you've probably experienced the conflict that exists in this reality. They don't want to eat those peas that you're telling them are really good for them, supposedly. I don't think anybody can prove that. But children are, well, we've got a couple children here. Don't tell the other children. Don't tell my children specifically that those peas might not be healthy for them. Like I think. All right. The showdown between this two-year-old and me, trying, me trying to get them to eat those peas, I mean, that's, this is going to be something big, right? You've been there? Like, swallow them. Don't just leave them in your mouth for the rest of the night. Swallow those. Quick. You know, if you've been there, you know what happens. You start to go big, you know, eat all your peas. And then by the end, you're like, okay, just eat two. <laughs> like, please, just, just eat two of those. That, that'll help. I mean, you're exhausted by the end. Even at a young age of two, the stubbornness and obstinate nature of the human will towards authority is present, isn't it? We see that in our children. Our willfulness reflects our fallenness. We want our will to be done. And that reflects our sin nature. Now, Christ knows this, but yet he still tells us to pray, your will be done. He knows that ever since the fall, the human will has been enslaved to sin, that every intention of our hearts has been always evil. Nevertheless, he says, pray, your will be done. And yet he knows that if those words are actually to be uttered from our lips, that it could only be an act of sovereign grace on our lives. To honestly pray, I want what you command of me and receive what you desire to give me can only come from hearts that have been made alive in Christ. Paul reminds us, no one can say Jesus is Lord 
except in the Holy Spirit. And so you see at the heart of this simple line, this simple prayer, your will be done, is truly faith and repentance. If there was ever a quote-unquote sinner's prayer to be found in Scripture, I think this is it. For here, in this phrase, lies absolute surrender and total dependence. Your will be done. Not mine, yours. I'm surrendering to all that you have for me. I will follow your regulations. Whatever you resolve to do, I will do. If you're here this morning and you've yet to turn in faith to the one who cries out, uh, who gives us this command, your will be done. If you've yet to repent of your sins, I would plead to you to pray that prayer this morning. Your will be done. We know that Jesus prays this prayer, don't we? The Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, not as I will, but as you will. And he did so not because he was defeated and couldn't get his own way. No, he did that because of you and I. And that it was the Father's will to crush him for you and for me. To take upon himself our sin and the penalty for our sin and pay for it all so that we might be forgiven. That is the good news because Jesus prayed, not as I will, but as you will, so we can pray, your will be done. If If we have received the gift of faith, then we can say, your will be done by the power of the Spirit that lives within us. We can be set, we are set free to obey Christ. We're set free to say, Your will be done, not in our own strength, but in the strength and the empowering of the Spirit. So, have you cried, Your will be done? Oh, not just in those moments where you, where you think, This is what I really want, and that's His will, so God do that. Or are you truly dependent on His will? Are you still holding on to your own will so tightly that you fail to see the freedom there is in obeying and abiding by His will? E. Stanley Jones, a missionary in India many years ago, put it this way. The commandments of God or God's will are not an imposition on us. They are an exposition of us. The commands are not imposed on us from the outside. They expose what is true inside us. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not because God is an egoist and cannot handle rivals. You shall have no other gods because we were created in such a way that the one and only true living God can satisfy us. God then speaks commandments to protect us, to keep us from ruining our lives He gives us these commands so that we can find joy in Him. So are we willing to follow His rules? Are we willing to go wherever He resolves to take us? I once heard the story of the brilliant ethicist uh, John Cavanaugh. He went to work for three years in the House of the Dying in Calcutta. On that first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. 
Someone who's very familiar to many of us, especially our society. There, Mother Teresa said, what could I do for you, John? And he said, I want you to pray for me. She asked, well, what, what specifically can I pray for you? And he said, pray that I have clarity, or in other words, that I know God's will for the future. To Cavanaugh's surprise, she said firmly, no, I'm not going to do that. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he, long, he had longed for, and she laughed and replied, Oh, I never had clarity, but what I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. You see, far too often, the words in front of us this morning have been prayed out of a tradition. Our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayed in tradition, but not in trust. Many times we too have uttered these things, hoping God's rule and will would align with our rule and our will. But these are truly statements of desperation and dependence. Submitting our plans, our dreams to the rule, reign, and resolve of our sovereign king. So are you desperate for his rule? Are you dependent on his will? Oh, not just in word, but truly dependent on his will. Father, this morning we ask that you would, through these phrases, reveal in our hearts where our rule and our reign has taken over and even rejected yours. Show us where we are not dependent on your will, but we want our way. We have dreams. We have ambitions that must take place, and we will do whatever it takes for that to happen. Reveal where those things are, and by your grace, remove those ambitions that are selfish, the will that has us in the spotlight, And God, rule and reign in our hearts so that we can truly pray your kingdom come, your will be done.